you have held really a variety of assignments, right? So you've done personnel, you've done logistics, information, protocol. Uh, you've had a, a really pretty big breadth throughout your career, which is fantastic to hear from you. It's not just the traditional, you know, single focus. It, it really has covered a huge swath of different um, kind of different subsets of what we do as a force. You, you know, you're 21 years, uh, you're now a security professional working as a vice president for Watermark Risk Management. Uh, you've, you're an author, you're a researcher, you're, you're a mom. And, and I really think that being able to have these conversations is, is so important. And I think it's General Van Ovos last year during Women's History Month got to give an interview and she said, it's hard to be what you can't see. And I think, I think these events really give us an opportunity to see other women other airmen uh, who have gone through experiences and use those to kind of help leverage them. So uh, without further ado, ma'am, and, and I'll let you take over, but but again, from AMC, from Reach Athena, from, from everyone out there, thank you so much for being able to have this conversation with us today. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to share my slides. Hopefully this will work and uh, have a good discussion with you today. Let me give this a try. Okay, how's it look? Looks great. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Well, thanks to everyone for being here. And I know you're all very busy. And so I'm excited to speak with you today. And a friend of mine is on, Sarah Kinzer. Um, Sarah just was selected for Colonel in the Reserve. And we were in Doha together. So our husbands were stationed at Al Udeed. And we took our families over for two years from 2013 to 2015. Well, actually, Sarah got to stay an extra year, lucky for her. Um, but she also has uh, been on this journey where she's kept her career going while she's been a, a mom, a great mom to her two kids. So there's a lot of us out there uh, for, for you to reach out to and have as mentors. But I'm just excited that she's on the line today from Hawaii. So thanks, Sarah. All right, so this is our topic today, women in military, removing barriers to success. And I like to start with this quote, there's plenty of difficult obstacles in your path, don't allow yourself to become one of them. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna to talk about how we can manage time, how we can juggle all the different roles that we have um, and have a successful career and get out of our own way, basically, because there are enough obstacles. So this is what we're doing today. We're gonna to remove some of those obstacles to success. So to set the stage, um, you know, sometimes when we talk about the traits that men and women bring to the workplace, there's uh, you know, this is better. Like we can multitask and that's better. We are linear thinkers and that's better. We have to understand that the differences make the team stronger. We're all different. We all bring a different set of skills to the workplace. We all bring different challenges. We bring our past, our lens that we see the world through. Um, we're all different people, but these differences make the team stronger. So good leaders know how to leverage those differences for success. So first we're gonna start with a little bit of fun. And this is just general generalizing. Uh, let's say that you're going to paint a room in your house. Uh, if you ask a woman what color that you wanna paint the room, there's all these shades, right? And if you ask a man, there's like five colors basically. And again, this is generalized. There's a lot of scientific evidence and data that goes into this though, that women think in these shades. Um, so it's not black and white. There's a lot of different shades of gray. And so we bring this to the workplace when we make decisions, um, when we work on projects. And so I just think it's interesting and there's a lot of scientific evidence to back this up. 
So this is kind of funny. And this is my personal experience. So let's say that you have a child daycare and you get a call that the child's sick, you need to pick them up. So this is, this is me and a lot of my friends that I saw when I was on active duty. First thing we do is apologize profusely to everybody. I'm so sorry, I've got to go to daycare. I'm sorry, I'm going to miss the meeting. Uh, there's this whole apology thing that goes on. Then we work hard. We put the out of office on the email. We sign up some papers. We clean up our inbox. We tidy up our desk. On the way out of the building, we probably run another errand. Uh, we stop quickly for medicine, for milk, for the child's favorite soup. We're on the phone calling the doctor for an appointment just in case. And then at two o'clock, we pick up our child. And from my experience, <laughs> this is what happens when a man gets the call. They pick up the child. So is this better or worse? No, the, in the end, the goal still was accomplished. But look at all the things that we go through, all the stress um, that we put ourselves through. And again, it's just generalizing, but I think it's just kind of fun to think about. So here's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to set the stage for our discussion, talk about the barriers to success, some tools to remove those barriers, and then we'll chat at the end. So we, when we do this, we really need to look at where women have been. You know, if we, and it's changed throughout the years uh, in terms of what women contribute to society and the strength of women and how they're perceived. So you go back to the 1800s. This is a woman who her whole job every day is to go out into a field and pick up buffalo chips to take back to the village so that they can use them for the fire. You know, and so she was providing, providing to the village, providing for her family. Then we went into the Rosie the Riveter stage, you know, the, the World War II, where women were working in factories, flying planes. Um, doing all sorts of non-traditional roles to, to fight for our country. Um, but then we kind of went back in time. We kind of went back to this June Cleaver kind of thing, you know, where she's a homemaker. And, and again, a lot of this is in uh, pop culture with movies and uh, TV shows and things like that. And then in the 70s, we went the other direction. This is the, I know, I know you're all way too young to know this commercial, but uh, this was this woman, you know, and the song was, I can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan. So basically she can work all day and come home and manage her household. So, you know, it's important to look back and think about women through the years, um, just the roles and how they've been perceived. And here we are today. So, I mean, this is amazing. I came in the Air Force in 1986. I think 10% of the military were women at that time. Um, I was at Moody Air Force Base. We were a fighter wing. We had F-4s from the Vietnam era and we transitioned to F-16s while I was there. Um, and my first assignment was an ops plans. So it was the old DOX, which is like, I don't know what it is now, but X, I was in plans. And, you know, it was kind of boring at first. And then I realized like, this is so cool. Like I got a top secret clearance. I got to read all these plans. I was a tactical deception officer. My boss at the time was very forward thinking. He had me take over roles from the pilots um, like TD, tactical deception. I went to tactical deception school. You know, I was the only woman there out of hundred people in the auditorium, um, which was really amazing. So I, I was lucky because I had early mentors who pushed me towards those non-traditional roles. But looking at where we are now, I mean, it's just amazing. And I just feel so happy and so proud about breaking that glass ceiling for women in the military. And I think this quote here from Jamie Jameson, Trix, um, who was the first female F-22 pilot. I love this quote from her. She says, either you can meet the standards and do the job or you cannot. In this life or death business, my demographic is irrelevant. And I think that's just perfect. And that just sums it all up. But there's still room for improvement. I mean, you can change laws and you can change rules, but the culture has to change. And culture change takes a long time. And, that, and we're still struggling with that, I know. 
so the first thing I want to talk about is time, time management. And I, this quote from Steve Jobs just means everything because here's a man who's a billionaire and he's on his deathbed. Unfortunately, he um, contracted, can I think it was liver cancer, and he fought it for about 10 years and then passed away in his 50s. And he says, it's really clear to me that the most precious resource we have is time. This is what he says on his deathbed. And so what better lesson um, from someone to, to take away? It's time. It's all about your time. And Stephen Covey, so I use Covey a lot. Um, and I'll talk later about how I melted down and how the Covey seven habits kind of helped me get organized. Um, but I think this is really important. So we spend a lot of time focused on things we can't control. And you know, as other people, our past, physical attributes, things like that, when we really should focus our time and our energy on what I can control. So you have to ask yourself, where do you spend your time? And I put this little sticky note thing down here to remind me um, to tell you of an exercise that I learned of that really works well. So get some sticky notes, get a pad of sticky notes and write down everything that keeps you up at night, everything that you're worried about, just brainstorm it, just sticky note after sticky note, and then put it in two categories, things I can control, things I can't control. And the things I can't control, just throw them away. There's nothing that you can do. It's no sense losing sleep at night, your health, um, focusing on those things because you can't control them and then really hone in on what you can control and focus your time there. This is a really powerful tool. So let's dig into it a little bit. Uh, there's things we can't change and there's no sense worrying about these. Um, your brain, okay, you can't change your brain. We have left brain people, we have right brain people. Um, you know, you can exercise your other side of your brain a little bit. You can try to learn another language. You can try to learn, you know, accounting and finance or science or whatever, but pretty much we're hardwired one way or the other. Um, our body, so I am not a runner. When I came in the, in the military, that was a challenge for me. Now, what I found out was, I'm really good if you put a pack on me, I can go a long way. So, you know, I could walk forever for seven miles, 10 miles with a heavy pack on. That's what I'm good at. I'm not good at running. So how I leveraged that was at field training. I was an ROTC at Penn State. When I went to field training, um, you know, I had to do the mile run, of course, a mile and a half. And of course we ran every morning, but I really leveraged my skills. So I knew what I was good at. So we went out and we did things in the field. I was the one who volunteered to carry the heavy stuff, you know, and walk it far. And then the people who ran, they went ahead and set up the camp and I showed up with all the tents and whatever else. So really understanding yourself and what you can do well and what, what you have going for you and then leveraging that is really powerful. Your gene pool, you know, you DNA wise, we are who we are. We got certain things from our parents. Maybe that makes us more predisposed to the medical issues. Um, things like that, can't change it, and our past. People spend a lot of time worried about their past, things that happened in the past, and not even the distant past. You know, it could be you were in a briefing and, and you, you know, something happened, you messed up somehow, and you just worry about that, you belabor that. Um, you can't change it, and you need to cut it loose. It's an anchor. It's an anchor that holds us back. So the good news is there's a lot of things we can change, and this is where we need to focus our time. Level of effort, how much time we put into things, and, and during the day, it's really important for you to think about how you spend your time. There's some really cool tools and apps now. There's a, there's a little, um, it's, I guess it's like a hexagon or something that you can put on your desk. And on each side, you put a little sticker, you know, like I'm, I'm on social media, I'm exercising, I'm working. And every time you do a task, you flip it and there's an app you put on your phone and it tells you exactly what you do all day. I know on the iPhone, it tells you what apps you've been on all day, the percentage of time. So this is a way that you can measure your effort, where you're, you're putting your time. 
And then how we engage and respond, you know, we can, we can definitely work on that. Um, if people give us feedback, how we respond to that, are we critical? Do we think about it all night? You know, are we up for three nights in a row worried about it? You know, again, our response um, is really important to those things. And then the effectiveness of how we make decisions, our communication style, how well do we listen? Listening is the number one communication tool, and it's probably the most underrated. We're probably the worst at it. Um, so this is an area that you can really focus. Also find out, you know, in my where are my weak areas in communication? Is it writing? Is it speaking? What is it? And then go and find a course online or in person and try to improve yourself. So this is a place that you can focus some time and energy to change. Relationships, um, toxic relationships, it's like an anchor. Um, get rid of them. It's just not worth it. Uh, so relationship building is really important with the people that matter the most to spend your time and energy on the people that matter most. Health and fitness, obviously, this is an area that we need to, to put a lot of time into. I'll get more into this in a second. Education, if there's things you want to do, if there's a course you want to take, you know, whether you want to maybe, let's say, just take a, a um, whatever, a, a chef course, you know, how to, how to cook better or how to um, make a basket. I, I'm taking a class in a couple of weeks, how to make a sweetgrass basket. I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and they have these beautiful baskets. And I'd like to learn how to make a basket. So I'm going to extract myself from the chaos of my work life and go learn how to make a basket. You know, so these, these are things, this is investing in yourself. Um, education is important. It takes you to the next level professionally, but also personally. It feels good when you invest in yourself. And so how we spend our time, this is a major way that we can change our life. And what I see a lot of times, uh, not just with women, with just with humans, is scapegoats. So a lot of times we'll say, you know, I'm this way because fill in the blanks. I'm this way because I'm a woman, because, um, you know, I didn't get the job because um, um, a man got it. If I were only a man, if I were stronger, if I were faster, smarter, whatever it is. So this, we spend a lot of time, again, on those areas we can't change. Uh, my life is scripted. I have no control. So basically... You know, when I grew up, I grew up from a broken family or I grew up poor or whatever. You know, you feel like your life is scripted and you can't change it and you have no control over that. And it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. And the environment makes me this way. So people say, you know, you make me really angry or you make me feel stupid or whatever. We're projecting, you know, instead of taking responsibility that I am responding this way and I'm making myself feel that way. So. I like this quote, you know, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul. In the end, it's just us, you know, when we look in the mirror and we see ourselves and, and we assess how we've made decisions and how we've responded. So really rescripting, rescripting things in your mind. So instead of saying, you know, if I were only stronger, faster, smarter, wealthier, younger, male, whatever, um, now you say, I can be more resourceful, I can be an improved communicator, I can be a better, better decision maker, I'm in control of my future. So really, it's kind of this rescripting in your mind. Living above the line. This is Stephen Covey. And I really like the system because, you know, there's things that are urgent and not urgent. And there's things that are important and not important. And I like how he kind of grouped these together um, and really live above the line. That's what Covey says. Live above the line. This is where you put your time and effort. Now, there's some things below the line, you know, some pleasant activities that we need to do. Obviously, we need to go out. For recreation, we need to get outside, we need to have fresh air, go camping, hiking, walk on the beach, things like that. So we need to have time for that. Um, but just make sure those activities are feeding your goals and that they're part of your compass of where you want to go. 
Now, what this looks like in action. Um, when I went to the Pentagon, well, I was I've stationed at the Pentagon three times. The second time I was there, our daughter was one and uh, John was working, my husband was in for 33 years. He was working on the joint staff and he was traveling a lot. And I had a big job on the A1 staff. I was a Lieutenant Colonel. I had our daughter when I was 33 uh, and I just been selected early for Lieutenant Colonel. So get to the Pentagon, uh, well, back it up, had her at Maxwell, which was perfect. I had her in August um, and we, I was in Air Command and Staff College and John was in Air War College for the, her first year of her life, which was perfect timing. Didn't do it on purpose, it just happened. But then we show up at the Pentagon. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of time when I was there at work to just talk to people and wander around the Pentagon. I had to focus on my work because I had to leave and get her a daycare. Uh, and I had to manage my time. So I was an exec officer there and people would just stop by. I had a chair next to my desk. People would just stop by to talk and whatever else. So what I did was take the chair away and then people would stop by to talk, but they couldn't sit down and linger. You know, we would have a short conversation and they would move on. These are just little ways that you could uh, manage your time. When people call and you don't have time to talk to them, you know, just tell them, I'll call you back, it's not a good time. Now you have to call them back because you just made a promise, but take care of your time. Reserve your time for the things that are important. Um, people will take advantage of it, they'll exploit your time. Sometimes they don't realize it, they're not doing it on purpose, uh, but you know, really preserve your time. So I really like this method of living above the line. And this is another Covey quote, the things that matter most can never be at the mercy of the things that matter least. And you know, this is maybe something that you even have on a sticky note on your desk, just as a reminder. Um, or maybe when you log in in the computer in the morning, this pops up. There's ways to remind yourself to stay on track for this. So effective people say no. Women have a hard time saying no. We say yes to a lot of things. Um, this is something I learned late in life. I still have trouble with this. I struggle with this because I want to help people. I want to do things to you know, help professionally, personally, but we have to learn to say no. And when you do say no and you vote for yourself, it's a really powerful feeling because you've now protected your time um, for the things that matter the most. So learn to say no, um, learn to ask for help. That's, I have that at the end. Again, I was late, late to that. I never asked for help. Um, when I had our daughter and I was in this big job at the Pentagon and struggling, you know, my mom would say, let me come and help you out for a week. And finally, I just said, okay. You know, at first I, I said no, because I thought I could handle everything. And then when she showed up, it was just such a relief to have help. And I, I should have been open to help before. So if people were offering you help, take it. You, you're, you know, you will help them. You will pay them back someday, but don't be afraid to, to ask. It, asking for help is a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. Um, delegate, that's important. A lot of times, uh, I see this with women. I see it with some men too. I, I don't mean to generalize this. I see some of these with men as well, but it seems like with women, this is more of a trend um, that we want to handle everything ourselves because we want the product to have our personal touch on it. You know, we're afraid to delegate. Delegation is a powerful tool. Um, and plus we have to grow future leaders. You know, people need to fail. So as leaders, we need to, to delegate out to, to folks and let them work on things and possibly fail and, and help them. Um, Effective people have balance in their life. This is true with CEOs of major companies. So I retired in 2007 and I started working as a government contractor and I have been ever since in a lot of different security areas. Um, so I've worked with different companies and I see with, especially with like Fortune 100 companies, Major League Baseball, places like that. The leaders, the CEOs, they have balance in their life. Um, they work, but they also take care of their, 
health. They're at the gym a couple hours a day. You know, they have this great balance. And so it's been interesting for me to look back now on my military career and kind of see how that was out of whack. You know, it was a lot of work and a little bit of, of, of other things when really we need to, uh, for the long term, for our own health um, in our future, the next chapter after you get out of the military, uh, we really need to have balance now. We need to focus on this now, not later and taking control of our time. This is what effective people do. So you really have to ask, where do I spend my time and what is the cost? And this is um, gonna be very interesting for you, I think, when you do it, because I found when I did this, the, I made a lot of assumptions that later were proven false <laughs> about where I spend my time. So I put this picture here to uh, remind me to tell you a story of when I retired. So 2007, I'd been a Colonel for three years. So I was promoted early to major two years, early to Lieutenant Colonel two years and early to Colonel one year. So sitting at Andrews Air Force Base, um, Vice Commander of the 316th Wing there, which is the host wing, uh, meeting the president every day on the ramp, um, you know, on CNN <laughs> pretty much when they covered it and had this amazing job, incredible career. Everything was going great at the 20 year point. And the Air Force sent me to Harvard to, to a senior fellowship. So this was a six week, fellowship at Harvard. And it was really for people that were, you know, the high potential colonels going to be a general kind of thing. And I was about a year out from my one star board and it was looking pretty good. And I get to Harvard, I'm there about two days and I self-actualize out of nowhere. Um, I decide I'm going to retire. Now, this was an interesting decision. It, it was pretty untimely. I didn't really expect to self-actualize. So I tell you this because it's going to hit you maybe when you least expect it. But I, I looked at my career and did I do everything that I wanted to do? Yes, I commanded multiple times. Um, I was in a black project out in the Las Vegas desert, which is where I met my husband. Um, it was the F-117 stealth fighter. And I had a, some great jobs out there. It was really interesting. I've been around the world. You know, I, I'd kind of done everything I wanted to do with the military. There was more ahead, but really what I was thinking about was our daughter who is nine years old. Um, you know, I always wanted to be a mom. And there really was never like a perfect time. So I kind of just jumped in and did it, which I highly recommend. If you want to be a mom, do it and you will sort your life out. Um, trust me, it just all works out. So she was nine at the time and uh, my husband was uh, one star and he was about to get a job as a wing commander somewhere. And I was on the wing commander list and about to get another job somewhere else. And I just kind of self-actualized and decided to retire. So what I found out when I retired at Andrews from this amazing, really high perspective, you know, high uh, visibility job was it was like pulling a finger out of water. It just kind of filled in, you know, the next day after retirement, things went on. Nobody really missed me. Um, and this is what we do in the military. We grow this huge pool of leaders that are tested, that are ready to step up it for us. If we get you know, hit by a bus <laughs> or if we decide to retire or we get sick or we are out of command for some reason. There's this whole pool of people to take our place. And so the reason I tell you this is because it's not worth sacrificing your health. It's not worth sacrificing your relationships, your family. You wanna have children, uh, what you wanna do for this because this is exactly what happens when you retire. So just something to think about. And also I had to call all my mentors and tell them uh, that I was retiring. I'm gonna talk about mentorship a little bit later and I'll, I'll tell you how that went. I just saw this new study that came out um, from the Society of Human Resource Management and it's Women in Leadership, Unequal Access on the Journey to the Top. It just came out like two weeks ago. And I, it's such a great report. I really recommend that you read it. And I think this is really fascinating that it's lonelier at the top for female leaders. So uh, the first, the top 
survey here was about feeling included in key networks in the organization. And you can see how um, it kind of drops off, you get down to white female managers and then female managers of color. Um, and certainly there's, there's a lot of challenges there and in, in the military as well. And feel they can talk about their personal life with others at work uh, without feeling judged. And you can see how this, this goes. Um, we have the same issues in the military, I think. It's very reflective of society as a whole and culture as a whole. But when you peel it back and we're in a male-oriented field, we're in a male-oriented career field. I don't call it male-dominated, I call it male-oriented. And so it's harder for us even um, than it is for women out in the corporate world. Although I work in security, the security world, which is you know maybe 20% women at this point. So really I'm still in another male-oriented field. Uh, but I just think reading these reports is really interesting as we plan our own way forward um, in the military, in the Air Force with our culture, changes that need to happen in culture and discussions we need to have. Uh, so this is from General Van Ovost and she said, Imposter syndrome is the small voice that you think you have in your head that says you're not good enough, even though some other person has done it, you're not as good as they are. And she says it's real and it can be paralyzing. And I don't think that men often have this inner conflict. This is so true. This is a fantastic quote. And this is something that we need to get outside of ourselves and see ourselves doing this imposter syndrome. And what I want to tell you about the military. So when you're promoted early or just in the, you know, even if you're promoted on time, it's almost like you're on this treadmill and somebody else is turning up the speed, right? You're just trying to keep up, you're trying to keep up, but there's a lot of competition, I'd say, in the military. So if somebody gets promoted ahead of you or somebody gets an award or, you know, run your own race, compete with yourself, don't compete with other people, it's unhealthy. Cubby, Stephen Covey says it's a competition's a cancer that'll eat you up and, and it, lowers your effectiveness, it lowers your performance. Um, overall, it takes away your ability um, to support yourself and be proud of yourself. So run your own race. Go, there's a great analogy, analogy in golf. If you ever watch uh, golf tournaments on TV, they'll ask people, you know, what do you think about the, this other golfer and his game is good today? And the golfers always say without fault, I don't know what his, what's going on with him. I'm not paying attention to that. I'm paying attention to my game. So think of it that way. Use the clubs that you bring. Use your, your own skills that you bring. Don't worry about what's happening with other people. You focus on your career, run your own race. Don't get into this um, mental state where you're comparing yourself to other people and you feel like you're not good enough and, and you're questioning whether you're good enough. You are good enough, of course you are. So run your own race. So let's talk about uh, unique stress of being a woman in male-oriented um, career field. The culture is male oriented. Now this has changed, obviously it's changing, um, but I work also with a lot of first responders. I work with law enforcement, um, FBI agents, things like that. And this is still a, still a male oriented culture that we're working in. So what does that mean? One of the things is, um, one of the pressures is representing all of womankind. And I'll give you an example. So I was at Lake and Heath and I was mission support, mission support squadron commander and I was pregnant. And so I was a pregnant commander and there was a lot of stress there because we had a 7 a.m. breakfast meeting every day. We had like a 6 p.m. wrap up meeting every day. There was a lot of stress. Lake and Heath is a tip of the spear. You know, we had a lot of inspections. Um, I was in charge of PRP for the base, which was a huge project. You know, we had 
a lot of different uh, stress, stress and pressure just being there at Lake and Heath. And so I always felt like, you know, if I didn't show up for a meeting, let's say I didn't show up for a breakfast meeting or I didn't work till six or whatever, you know, I felt like I was letting all women down because people were looking at me as a pregnant commander and judging me. Could I handle everything? And, and I realized probably a couple months into this, that that was just ridiculous. I wasn't representing all women in that moment, but this is some of the stress that we feel. And I'm sure a lot of you are thinking back to times when you felt that way too in the workplace. So this is just the unique stress for women in the workplace. Um, not being treated as a peer, this is uh, a role issue. So you have to really be careful when um, supervisors or people who work for you um, start treating you more like a daughter. You know, I've, I've worked for um, senior leaders who sometimes get in this like father-daughter kind of mode, which is unprofessional, or people um, say you're like a mom to me, you know, maybe with young airmen, like, oh, or I've, I know people who even they called her mom, you know, it's, she's a leader, not a mom, but these are roles that we slip into, or sisters, or, you know, professional, you have to, you have to engage and uh, get this relationship back to colleagues, you know, that we're professional colleagues, not slip into these roles. You want to be treated as a peer, as a colleague, as a professional. Now, sometimes on the battlefield, obviously, the brother and sister mentality, you know, the family thing is super important. But I just kind of bring that up because I see women sometimes um, slipping into these different roles in the workplace. And then what about emotions? So I'm half Italian. Uh, I'm a very emotional person. I cry at Hallmark commercials and the SPCA commercial as soon as the uh, music is cued. <laughs> I'm already into it emotionally. Uh, but we bring this to the workplace. It, it's who we are. And we have to acknowledge that. I'll give you an example. So Seymour Johnson, Air Force Base. Um, I was the deputy support group commander, mission support group commander. Um, on 9-11 and we were the lead AEW on call and immediately half of the support group got up and deployed to Manas and built Manas Air Base or deployed to Kyrgyzstan and built Manas Air Base. And I was rolled up and I was the mission support group commander. Um, unfortunately, we had one of our female security forces um, get into a car accident. So she was stationed at Seymour Johnson. Her husband was a Marine at Camp Lejeune. They lived halfway in between and um, she, would drive um, in, into work at Lake and Heath, at like, or I'm sorry, at Seymour Johnson, like at 5 a.m. in the morning. One morning it was foggy. She went off the road. Uh, the car rolled a couple of times. She survived. She broke her back. She actually dragged herself to the road, flagged down a passing motorist. Um, they picked her up and took her to the hospital. And she was in the hospital. She was fine. She was in traction. And one night she threw an embolism and died, um, which was just horrible. She was 23. So we had the funeral at Seymour Johnson. Um, half the church was Marines who came up for the funeral and the other half was her family. And I had to sit in the front row with her mom and her sister who both had on t-shirts of, of this woman who died as an angel. Um, very emotional, very emotional experience. And, and I cried, I mean, I'm a mom and I cried and it, it was, uh, you know, I, I wasn't sobbing, but you know, I had tears and in that moment, I thought, you know, should I be more of a, a colonel? Should I be uh, stronger? Should I just be myself? And I just said, I need to just be myself. I need to be authentic. I'm, this is just a horrifying situation. And afterwards, the mom said she really appreciated my emotions because it showed how much the Air Force cared about her daughter. And so this is just one experience that I had where I was glad that I was authentic and I was true to myself and I, I wasn't an imposter and I didn't put on an act. You know, this is how colonels act. I was Jenny in that moment. 
Um, and this is where you have to get to in the Air Force. And I know it's hard sometimes, um, but we have emotions and it just means we're passionate. It just means we care, nothing else and nothing more. Humor, so humor is a form of communication. It's a great way to deal with embarrassment. Um, it lets people off the hook. I have a lot of you know stories of embarrassment. Obviously, in a 21-year career, things happen. We're women, you know. We we have babies. We have periods. We breastfeed. Um, you know, so things happen. But the best way to handle it is just humor. It lets people off the hook. A lot of times, if something happens in the workplace um, that's embarrassing for us, people are horrified, especially men in that in those areas I just discussed. It just relieves the stress in the moment. You know, and I, I learned if you're going to laugh later about it anyhow, you might as well just laugh now. Um, and it really increases team cohesion. So use humor. So another golf analogy. Uh, these people are looking for a golf ball. Uh, our daughter is a really great golfer. And um, when she was a freshman at Holy Cross in D.C., she was, played on the varsity golf team. And so we, we attended a lot of golf tournaments with her. And one of the things I noticed was if a, a boy golfer hit his ball and lost it, he would go way out to look for it. Now, parents, we kind of knew where the ball was, but the kids were supposed to find it on their own. So it was kind of excruciating, excruciating to watch. But they, the boy golfer would go way far past his ball to look for his ball. And the female golfer, if she was looking for her ball, would look short of it. And so I, I started to think about this in the workplace. Do we sell ourselves short? in the workplace. Um, let's say that our boss comes in with a big project and we're not sure we can commit to it or what the timeline would be. A male colleague is probably more likely to just jump in and take it. We're thinking, we're thinking, you know, can I do this? Can I do it in a week? I'm not sure. And we're just less confident, I think, to jump in. And this is something that could hold us back in the workplace. So this is just an analogy and, and you probably have one that you've thought of as well. Okay. so. This is um, Superwoman who's crashed. And this is uh, a, a picture that kind of represents something that happened to me at the Pentagon when our daughter was one and I was working in the, in the, on the A1 staff. Um, I was the head of separations and retirements for the Air Force, which was a really interesting job. And my husband, John, was traveling a lot. So with the childcare, you know, trying to get all my work done, get out the building, get to childcare to pick up our daughter, it was hard. It was really a, a big struggle. Now I was a Lieutenant Colonel, so it was easier for me to just get up and leave. I know when you're a captain and you have a child that you need to pick up the childcare, it's probably a lot harder for you to get up and leave because you're thinking, how is this going to impact my career? I was at the point in my career where I just said, I'm leaving, um, but still it was a struggle. It was a big challenge. So in this struggle, you know, I just kind of crashed and burned and I was taking care of everything at work, taking care of home, taking care of our daughter. Everything was in sync, except I was not taking care of myself at all. So this is when I really started to read up on balance. How can I get balance back in my life? And again, this, um, I'm just, a, I use a lot of different methods, but the Stephen Covey method, I think is the most effective because you have a compass, you have a set of goals and you do all these things to balance and renew yourself so you can accomplish your goals, right? So these are the areas that need to be in balance. Um, and we're going to talk about each one. And I will say, one of the things I did was ask for help. Uh, a friend of mine, Francine, who was a lieutenant colonel, whose husband was a lieutenant colonel, and she had a, a small child. She, one of the times that I was really upset in the bathroom, <laughs> Francine came in and we talked for a long time. And I come to find out she had an au pair. 
she got an au pair through an agency that was sanctioned by the State Department. And uh, the State Department does all the background checks. Uh, they get their visa, they pay their taxes. Um, it's this amazing program. There's four au pair agencies. And before I thought, you know, I could handle everything. And I decided I'm going to give this au pair program a try, which was a big risk for me. It was asking for help and saying I couldn't juggle everything was, was hard. So we did. We, we worked with this au pair agency and um, the au pairs, there's a database and they put in the database, what kind of family they're looking for, how many kids, do they want to be rural, do they want to be in the city, um, what are their skills like, you know, or do they swim, are they artistic, things like that, and then you put in what you want for your family, and it spits out these uh, choices for au pairs, so, you know, it would give you like four or five choices, and you get on the phone with them, and this is before Zoom and everything, um, talk to them, and then make a match, and they come and stay with you for a year, they live with you for a year, and they take care of your child, they take them to school, daycare, make their meals, wash their clothes, and then, of course, they do other things around the house to help. And at the time, it was like $120 a week. Um, so we did that. And the au pair, the first au pair that we had was with us at Seymour Johnson. So we showed up at Seymour Johnson in June, and we had 9-11 in September. And uh, Lena was there from Norway. John was the ops group commander. I was a deputy mission support group commander. And all hell broke loose. And you know, i just so thankful that I asked for help and that I jumped in. And, and did that because it just, our daughter was three and her life just kind of went on as normal while everything else was so chaotic. Um, so kind of a side story there for you, but balance, these are the things we need to do. So let's talk about things we should, we don't do, but we should. And the first area is physical. Uh, this is something that I found, and I know a lot of my colleagues in the military also, doctor's appointments, we'll make sure our children have all their shots, our children have all their doctor's appointments, um, but we put ourselves off to the side. It's on the bottom of our to-do list to get in for annual appointments. Thankfully, the military has the system where they make sure you get to certain appointments, which is helpful. Once you get out, you're on your own, you know, and you really need to focus on this and make sure it happens. Um, exercise, so with the Pentagon, uh, my male colleagues, they would leave for like an hour and a half or two hours to go work out. They'd leave the Pentagon. They'd run, you know, up all the way into the city and be out for two hours. And when I left to go to the POAC, I would apologize, you know, I'll be back in a half hour. I'll be back in an hour. By the time you drag yourself all the way down to the Pentagon gym, you know, it's already 20 minutes. You get in there, you do a quick workout, you get back. I just found we really short ourselves in this area, but being fit is part of our job. And it's really important later in life, which I'm gonna talk about, you wanna have something left in the tank and what you do now, what you do today, investing in your body is gonna pay off down the road or it's not gonna pay off. I can tell you that 100%, I'm 56. And I can tell you that the things I did in my thirties and forties, it's now coming to bear. So it's really important. You don't wait till later, like I'm gonna do this later in life. You gotta do it now and healthy eating. So. I would make sure I always packed John's lunch. Um, Sarah always had her little lunch box when she went to school. And then I would get to work and I would just, I wouldn't have food. I mean, I would eat out of the vending machine at the Pentagon. I would, you know, go grab some junk food somewhere. It was really bad. And so I learned, I had to, I call it make your own sandwich. Okay. If I'm making food for everybody else and it's all healthy and they have fruit and vegetables, why am I shorting myself? Um, I had to make my own lunch. I need to take care of myself. And so Again, these are just the things that I've seen with myself and my female colleagues that I want you to think about. Uh, mental, you know, learning new things. Yes, work is all encompassing. It's the military, it's our profession. We put 100% of ourselves into it. 
But like I said before, if there's something else that you want to do, go do it, learn new things, exercise your brain in a different way. It's really important holistically. You have your work side of the brain, but then you, you know, there's other things you want to do. And I think this wordle, this is like pretty cool. You know, every day there's this word puzzle and everybody's going out to do it. It's because our brains like that. We like to do something different. Um, so crossword puzzles, um, whatever it is, whatever you like to do, just do it. And then spiritual, and, and this could be religious, but not necessarily. I mean, spiritual could be going for a walk in the woods. I live at the beach, you know, for me, walking on the beach is a spiritual experience. And then listening to the waves, the birds, breathing fresh air. Um, and I, I think this quote is great. The greatest battles in life are fought in the deepest chambers of the soul. And this, this is so true. Um, another thing I would mention here is just taking the time to be still and just to stop, you know, and shut everything down, shut the chaos of the world down and literally just sit there and just be still. There's uh, a lot of books that are written about how to do this, whether it's, it's not necessarily meditation, but just kind of unplugging. It's so healthy to unplug from everything. And it's easy now, easier now, I think, than ever because you can work from home. And so you never really get away from it. And if you live on a base, you drive three minutes from your house to work and back and you can hear the planes flying over. And I know I lived that life and I know it was very hard to, unplug from everything because it was constantly in your face. It's constantly happening. Um, so just learn to be still. Something I took up after I got out of the military that I wish I'd done in the military is yoga. Yin yoga is a deep stretching meditative practice. And so it's not so much like sun salutations and constant. You get into a position and you sink into it for like 10 or 15 minutes and deep stretching is a game changer, by the way, from a fitness perspective um, for hiking and running and everything. It's just, the, it's meditative. You know, you really unplug, your mind is still, you're focusing on yourself, you're investing in yourself. It's just a really good feeling. And I, I wish that I'd done this my whole life and not just when I turned 50. So just kind of food for thought. And then social and emotional stewardship, giving back, having gratitude for everything that we have instead of wanting more, you know, all the blessings that we have, giving blood, dropping off clothes at the, at the Salvation Army, Giving, you know, giving is a powerful thing for, for ourselves. It's investing in ourselves in a lot of ways. So things we don't do, but should, and make your own list because I'm sure you have some. Oh, and I'll add one to this. One thing that we don't do, but we should is thank ourselves for all the things that we do. So part of the Covey um, system was to write down everything that you did every day, everything. And so that was mailing a box to somebody, sending a gift card to somebody for their birthday. Um, planting something in the garden. I mean, you know, we do a lot of stuff every day. And then when you look back on it, you think, wow, I did, I did a lot. You know, I've, I've really done a lot because sometimes I think we get in this mode where we feel like we don't do enough and we're out of time and we're frustrated. And it's the self, you know, the cycle that just continues. So write down what you do every day, look back on it and be proud of it. Being authentic, we talked about imposter syndrome a little bit. Being authentic means being consistent. So I have seen um, throughout my career, uh, there's a lot of four-star generals right now that I know because they're from my year group, 86, 88 timeframe. Uh, and I know which ones have been authentic their whole career because I was the second lieutenant with them. Um, and I know who's been consistent and who hasn't, who plays a role and who's different when, you, when you're off duty with them than when they're on duty. Um, being authentic is so important. It's so important for people to know who you are. 
on a day like 9-11, you know, when you're asking people to do things that you never dreamed of. I said, I said before, John was the ops group commander and we had F-15s at Seymour Johnson, you know, we're on the Eastern seaboard. And so the order was to get up in the air and fly and possibly shoot down a civilian airliner. Now, who would have ever dreamed of that before? It's something we never thought about. We never trained for it. We never practiced for it. And here it was that morning, literally went from having coffee at nine o'clock in a staff meeting to war, you know, in an hour and a half. Um, that's not the time for people to question who you are. When you ask them to do things, you want them to do it and trust that you're making a decision and you know them and you care about them and you care about their family. Um, it's the same with firefighters, you know, when the fire chief sends four firefighters into a burning building, they need to know that he has the best interests at heart, he or she. And that's something that you build up to. It doesn't happen that day. So being authentic means consistency in action, being who you are every day, showing up at work as yourself, being yourself consistently, not putting on a role. Now, I worked for a colonel once and he used to speak in the third person a lot, which drives me crazy. And he would say, well, that's what the colonel does. That's what the colonel says, you know, and it was just like, no, be yourself. That's what I do. That's what I say. Um, so I'm sure you've probably seen that as well. So some of the danger signs are this role playing, you know, that's what the commander does. That's what the, the chief does kind of thing. Um, speaking in the third person. And then in the end, you know, like I said, in the end, all you have is yourself. And if you're authentic and you're 100% authentic in your decision-making and your leading and your communication um, and just in who you are, it's a good feeling to know that you didn't do this, that you didn't put on a persona, that it is you. And when you can look yourself in the mirror and say, uh, I did a good job, then you know, you know you've arrived. So what you see is what you get. That's what you wanna strive for. You know, in the Air Force, is, I, I loved my military career. I loved the Air Force because I felt like everybody was welcome on the team, you know, no matter what you brought in. The people I worked with through the years are very different. I mean, when I, when I became a colonel and I looked at the colonel pool around me, we were all really different, you know, and I think that was great because there wasn't a cookie cutter process. You know, we aren't like little robots, little clones of each other. We were all very different. So be yourself, be 100% yourself and you're accepted and there's a place for you on the team and you can grow and develop and be a leader. It's great. It's not like that in a lot of corporations, to be honest. So mentoring, we're gonna talk about mentoring. Let me check my time. Okay, talking about mentoring a little bit, mentoring the game changer, as I call it. This is really important. Um, and I like these, this quote, mentoring's a brain to pick, an ear to listen, and a push in the right direction from John Crosby. Now, what is mentoring? Mentoring is a natural relationship. Mentoring is not a forced relationship. And I'll, I'll talk about an experience I had with that on the next slide. This is a, you know, you look out there for someone who looks like you or who uh, walked the walk that you want to walk. It's someone you get along with. It's, this is built on trust. I mean, it has to be somebody you trust because you're going to share some pretty deep things with them, like failures, um, concerns, maybe relationship problems, problems with your boss, things like that. So it has to be somebody you trust, obviously. So it's built on a platform of trust. And it's a partnership. It's, it's kind of a two-way street. Sometimes when, if I mentor someone you know, I learn from them as well. And I'll even ask them a question about an issue that I'm having and get their feedback and kind of mentor and training sort of thing. Um, so it is a partnership. It's not just one way. You shouldn't just call your mentor and expect this big dump <laughs> of information and wisdom. You know, it's, it's a conversation. So it has to be somebody that you, you get along with. Um, so it's this mutual investment and it's voluntary. It has to be voluntary. It can't be a program. 
So, you know, the Air Force started this mentoring program, I think it was probably in the 90s or maybe like early 2000s. A program doesn't work. I mean, yes, they can say you have to mentor 10 people twice a year, check a box. That's not mentoring. Like we just said, it's not a forced relationship. Um, it's got to be a natural thing. Um, it's not a power play. And some people, some more um, aggressive people, I'd say, you know, they'll pick a mentor because it's someone they think is going to help them get a job or help them be a commander, help them get to school. That's not what mentoring is. Um, and it's not a way to bypass your supervisor. So just because you don't want to talk to your boss about an issue at work doesn't mean that you, you know, run out and get a mentor so you can dump it all on them. That's not what mentoring is. Now, why do I have this picture of Harry Potter and the Dementor? Kind of a play on words, Dementor. Uh, when I was a Lieutenant Colonel at the Pentagon, there was a female general who thought that she was the mentor of all female officers, I guess. So she would actually have her, her staff schedule us for mentoring and we had to go be mentored by her. She was someone that I didn't really respect, to be honest. She didn't live the life that I lived. Um, she wasn't married, she didn't have a child. She told me as a Lieutenant Colonel that I needed to get out of the Air Force because there was no way I could be a mom and have a successful career, which I was already at the 15, 16 year point. Um, I called it DMENT, she's the DMENTOR. So this is just a play on words, but that's not what mentoring is. That's forced mentoring. Um, that's not what it is at all. But it's also not coaching. So there's room in your professional life for both mentors and coaches. So the difference is, we'll look at coaching first. Coaching is more performance driven. It's focused on your job skills, um, talking about your performance, providing career guidance. Maybe this is your boss even, this is a manager type thing. It's task oriented and grooming you for the next job. So that's what coaches do. Mentors care about you as a whole person. Uh, so this is more development driven. This is the balance, um, you know, drawing forth your untapped talent as a mentor will say, hey, you're really good at this. Why don't you try to get a job in this area? Or, or you're bad at this, you know, you're a terrible writer. You need a writing course. This is what, you know, mentors are honest. Sometimes you have to be open to that honest feedback, but mostly they're just encouraging you. They're inspiring you to be more than, than you are. They're empowering you and they're guiding from their heart basically uh, as a way to look at it. So an example is John took up um, mountain climbing after he retired. And so he has a coach who tells him how to work out, um, his fitness, what he should eat. He's got this whole schedule for that. And then a climbing mentor who says, you know, why do you want to climb the mountain? What happens if you don't get to the top? Asking like these existential questions. So that's the difference. And there's room in your life for both and you need both. Uh, but it's important to realize uh, the people that you lean on for this or that you look to what, what roles that they're in. And good mentor behavior. And I'm sure you're probably all mentors. And, and I mentor, I have five students at Penn State that I'm mentoring right now, my alma, alma mater. Uh, and then probably six or seven military folks that I check in with um, as a mentor as well. But mentoring, it takes time. You know, it takes a lot of time. And you have to listen. You have to have good listening skills. It's not all about you when you talk to somebody and I know they tell counselors this all the time. It's not about you. You share your experiences, but you're there to listen to the other person. Um, mentors should be honest with you. And they should, if you have a mentor who's not, who's just telling you everything's great and you're wonderful and whatever, that's probably not a great mentor because you want one to help you round things out. You know, it's comfortable to stay in the area that we're um, good at. So when you focus on your skills, let's say you're a really great 
public speaker, but you're not a good writer, you're going to stay in that realm. You're going to stay with what you're good at. But if you want to raise your whole level of effectiveness, you have to work on the stuff you're not good at. And it's hard, but it's really important to identify it and work on it because it's going to raise you up to this higher level of effectiveness all the way around. And, and you'll be a more well-rounded um, and better leader. Mentors have to lead by example. You know, sometimes a mentor says one thing to you and then their work, their, what they do at work is incongruent with what they've told you you should be. Um, it's okay to stop a mentoring process. If you have a mentor that you think isn't serving you anymore, that's fine. It's another anchor that you need to cut. There's a way to do that professionally and just do it because again, it's, this is about you. No one takes better care of you than you. So take, take the step to stop that relationship if you need to. Um, they're not there to rescue you. So you don't go to a mentor and say, I got Air War College, but I wanted to go to National War College, whatever. You know, that's not mentoring. They're not rescuing you um, from situations or helping you get jobs. Again, that's not mentoring. Um, but they should help you locate resources. Sometimes if I'm mentoring someone and I find out that there's like a book they should read or something, I'll let them know. I'll just send a text. How easy is it with the phone to just send a text, check in on people? Um, so you can really mentor. You don't have to just wait for the phone call every month. You can mentor every day. And they challenge you. They challenge you to improve. And then they check in. They're, they're there. They check in. So that's what mentors do. That's what we should do as mentors. And that's what we should expect from our mentors as well. So does gender matter in mentoring? No. I will tell you all of my mentors in the military were men. I had zero female mentors. Why is that? Well, I started in the fighter world. I was at Moody. I was at Nellis. Um, I was at Lake and Heath. I was at Seymour Johnson. I was in the fighter world. Um, and when, even when I was at the Pentagon, my mentors were all men and they were fantastic. Uh, I had male mentors that wanted me to be a mom that encouraged my decisions um, for my family. Like at retirement, I said I had to call my mentors and tell them that I was retiring. Some responded better than others. Um, at that time, I found out some were more invested in the Air Force than they were in me. And that was hard to learn. But um, gender doesn't matter in mentoring. Of course, we'd like to find a woman uh, that has walked the path that we want to walk on to be our mentor, but that may not happen. And we mentor men and you know, men mentor us and that's fine. Gender does not matter at all in mentoring. It's the person that you have that trust with, the connection with, that you want to um, have a say you know, in your life in terms of what you need to work on, um, where you need help to raise yourself to the next level. So it doesn't matter at all. And there's so many benefits to mentoring. Um, it's this transfer of knowledge, especially in the military culture. I think we learn a lot from our military mentors um, in terms of just where they've been, the journey they're on. Like my talk with you today, um, you know, I did come in in 86. I know that's like before a lot of you were probably even born, but um, there's still so much that I learned that, that I'm able to share with you that I think is helpful in your current journey. Um, and then all these other things, we know that mentoring is really important, but for retention, so retention is really a huge topic right now in the government, and I'm, and I'm sure it is in the military as well. When we train people and we sink money into them, we want them to stay, obviously. I'm telling people that you can retire at 20 years with full benefit, with your um, pension and whatever else, 20 years seems like forever from now, I think for the new generation entering the workplace, but I will tell you that it goes by quickly and um, it's fantastic. Now when I get my retired retirement check every month, you know, it's just amazing because I've been retired since 2007. So you can see how that really adds up over time. So if you can get to 20, um, it's really, and the retirement plan that we have is really incredible. 
but that's what mentoring does. So mentoring helps in all these areas. So it's important in our organizations to have mentoring happening. Again, if you say a program and you force it on people, that's not what we're looking for. You have to have some rules of engagement, you know, and a structure for this to happen. Um, but definitely in your organization, encourage mentoring because it does feed the organization and helps it grow as a whole. And then micro mentoring, you know, there's ways to mentor every day. Don't walk by a problem. I see this a lot, maybe, maybe more now than ever, um, that if people see something wrong that they're not engaging and that's for different reasons. But as a leader, as a future leader, a growing leader, you can't walk by a problem. So if you see somebody um, like a behavior in the workplace that's inappropriate, um, a comment that's made that's inappropriate, whether it's to you or to a colleague, you know, we need to engage. We need, we need to engage for the good of the whole organization. Um, again, technology is easy to check in with people, just send them a message. Hey, did you get out for lunch today? Um, did you get to the gym today? And help each other as colleagues. Um, women helping women, I think is a big thing. Um, we have to help each other. We can't, we have to help each other, pull each other up the ladder of success, right? And not kick each other off. There's some competition, I think, that happens between, well, it happens between men as well, but it's just, it's toxic, uh, it's unnecessary. And I think as women, we need to support each other. For me, feminism, I'm a feminist, and I know that that's kind of a trigger word out in the world, but feminism to me means that I support what you want as a woman, as a person, as whatever gender you identify with, whatever you wanna be, I support that. And I'm gonna try to help remove barriers and obstacles for you to achieve that. That's what I think um, as feminism, what it is. And so, as I said before, when I came in the Air Force, only 10% women, um, there was some competition. I'd say there's less, there was less help in the pool of women. There was a lot more competition. Today, hopefully, because we're at 20% or something that, you know, it's hopefully it's better, but let's help each other, you know, and, and let's encourage each other to get out for lunch, get away from the desk, go home at six or go home at seven or whatever is a decent hour where you work, check in on each other, you know, and support each other and just model the change you want to see. So sometimes it's easy to just complain about the workplace and whatever else. Um, I'll give you one example. When I was in that job with a one-year-old and I was at the Pentagon, the three-star, I had a meeting with the three-star at 4.30. And so I went up to his office and I knew I had to leave at 5.15 to get down 3.95 to get our daughter from daycare. So I'm sitting there at 4.30, I'm ready for the meeting. And the secretary says, um, the general, you're going to have to wait. We have to slip it to 4.45. So I'm starting to look at my watch, getting a little bit nervous. Then it's five. And then finally, I realize I can't have this meeting with the three-star because I'm not going to be able to get to daycare on time. Again, my focus was, you know, our daughter. And I didn't want her to be at daycare and pick her up late. So I said, I need to reschedule the meeting with the three-star. When I went back and told my female colonel boss that, she freaked out. She was so upset with me. And she's like, what are you doing? You can't do that. Now, she never had children. Um, and I just said, this, I'm going to pick Sarah up at daycare. And I just, I've got to leave. Well, the general, when I finally had the meeting with the general, he told me he respected that. He respected my decision to do that. And skip ahead, who knew that five or six years later, I would be working in that office as the exec to the A1 in that same secretary was there, admin assistant. And she told me that she said, you know what, the one thing that really impressed me about you when you worked on the air staff, and I'm thinking, oh, my great packages, my staff summary packages, my presentations. And she said, I really respected that day that you walked out to get your daughter and you changed the meeting with the three star. And so 
that's what I'm, I'm trying to get across to you with this point is that what you do, other people see that and they start doing it. And in our work section, there was no reason for us to sit there till seven o'clock at night. Our work was done for the day and people were missing their kids' little league games their daughter's ballet lessons. And even if they didn't have children, they were missing out on their own life and doing things that they wanted to do. When I started to get up to leave at 5.15, everybody else started to get up to leave. And pretty soon at the end of two years, we were shutting the office down at 5.15 and that's just how it was. The culture had changed. So model the change you wanna see, make your decisions for yourself, invest in yourself, know, know what your goals are and your compass and make your decisions around that. And the world will just fall into place, believe me. And that, that general who told me I needed to get out at 16 years because I was now a mom, you know, I, was, I made Colonel early and I had fantastic jobs. So be yourself do what you need to do and everything else will take care of it. And I like this Mother Teresa quote, don't wait for leaders, do it alone, person to person. Let's engage with each other and help each other. So this is what I do when I mentor people, really focus in on goals. Um, so based on our whole discussion over the last hour, I think we could talk forever. Uh, what is, think about this, what is one improvement you can make in your professional life, one improvement in your personal life and one activity that you can plan for movement on both this week. And this is what you need to do. You need to have goals and you need to hold yourself accountable to it. Um, and this is another good quote. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So closing out here, uh, these are my truths. This is what I found in uh, 56 years. I, I came in the Air Force at 20. I was commissioned at 20. So I've been um, in the workforce for 36 years now. And what I've learned is life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You have got to pace yourself. I know it feels like when, when the military is turning up the heat and we're on that treadmill and it's going faster and faster, you have to focus on the long game. You have to have something left in the tank when you retire because you have a whole other, another life after you retire and things that you wanna do. And you can't be just this broken, empty shell of a person when you retire. Um, so life's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Slow things down, get focused on your goals, get your act together. And life will never get easier than it is today. So people will, now I have colleagues who say, I really want to get a master's and whatever. I want to get a doctorate. And I tell them just jump into it because life is never easier than it is today. And this is one thing that I've learned is that there's things around the corner you don't know that are going to happen. The pandemic, think about the pandemic and how it rocked our world and what we would have done if had we known. So if there's something you want to do, jump into and do it. Life never gets easier. And no one takes better care of you than you. And I've said that twice now, and that is the truth. So this is my last slide. Uh, you know, we, we have a lot of roles. We wear a lot of hats in our lives. Um, we juggle a lot, but this is our, our daughter, Sarah, here up in the left with me. And i um, so thankful that I made that hard decision um, to retire and when she was nine and carve out a career where I was able to spend time with her and be with her as opposed to taking assignments apart and all of that. So just thankful that I made that decision. Um, and like I said, you have to have something left in the tank, right? So I've, our family's traveled. We've done a lot of traveling. Uh, we went to the South Pole. We went to the North Pole. Uh, we climbed Kilimanjaro, which is amazing. Last year, I always wanted to go and look for dinosaur bones. I know that sounds crazy. I'm a complete science geek. So I went to Montana with a group and that's me down there in the bottom searching for dinosaur bones. So I found bones and we uh, put them in plaster of Paris and sent them to museums. It was an amazing experience, but this is the 
you know, always learning, always curious, doing the things that you want to do, not letting um, time go by and just putting it off, just jumping in and doing it, but also being healthy in this chapter after the Air Force. And you never know when you're going to self-actualize. For me, it was at 21 years. Maybe for you, it's at 10 years or it's at 14 years, or some people get out at 17 years. You don't know, but you want to be healthy. You want to be ready for that next chapter. And you want to have the people around you that you love. You want to have worked on the relationships so you're not alone at your retirement and you look in the front row and nobody's there, right? So begin with the end in mind. Think about now what you want to have and be and start working on it now. There's some pictures from Andrew. So my last greet of President Bush, he was so kind. He let um, Sarah come out to the flight line and he was just so kind with her. And also she got to get on Air Force One, which was really cool. Um, there at the bottom is probably one of the best days in the Air Force. I I won an award and I was able to get a sortie up at uh, Tonopah Test Range in Nevada. I said we were up there for the black program, F-117, um, 89 to 92. And so I got a T-38 ride and it was just such a thrill. Um, and also just to fly from that really special place. And then in the lower right, so this is in Doha and Qatar and Sarah Kinzer, who's on the call, she came with me and we went to the Palestinian school where there's Palestinian refugees and we taught English to high school girls. And these girls I've stayed in touch with on Instagram and they're all in college. And one of them is one year away from being a doctor. She's in Jordan. Um, a couple of them are finishing up their master's degrees. And so this was, you know, this was kind of scary. We had to put ourselves out there to do this, but it just, the payback was just so worth it. So again, if there's something that you wanna do, um, just jump in and do it. It's your life, create the life that you want, but it all starts now. It starts with what you're doing right now. And this is my contact information. Please reach out anytime. And I'm going to stop sharing. Go back to the main room. And maybe take questions. Hey, Nan, I uh, just want to say thank you, number one. This is Kelsey again. And I think to me personally, at home, when you talked about setting boundaries and, and expectations, you know, I, I think we've all been there where we start a new job and we're exhausted from the last. And we say to our boss, hey, sir, I want to PT three times a week. My boundaries are I'm leaving at 4.30 to get my kids. And then for some reason, it always feels like at the first chance where you're being challenged to hold, hold the line on kind of your boundaries and the expectations you set, a lot of times I think that we feel like, oh no, it's just this one time. I'll only, you know, not work out. I'll work out twice instead yeah. of three times this week. And then before you know it, you've lost your PT. You, you're no longer going home at 4.30. You know, you're going home at five. And I think, I know, I'll tell you personally, I, I think I run into that problem as well. You know, I, 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 uh, I don't stick to it. And so I think each of us have to really, really make sure that we're, again, looking internally, asking ourselves those hard questions. What, what can I control, what can I not? And, and I don't feel like I can, I'll for sure have to kick off the first question with what are you reading and what podcast are you listening to? What really is kind of flowing through kind of your consciousness right now? Uh, as far as development, mentorship, you know, all of those things. What are you listening to? Uh, well, that's a good question. Okay, I'm gonna go back. First of all, I see everybody in the room and I wanna say thank you to the men that are here today. Um, I've given this presentation to law enforcement audiences and also at um, GSX, which is a big, the international security conference. And we always have uh, men attend, which I love because they work with us, they work for us, we work for them. Um, maybe they're fathers of daughters, you know, and they want to know what they're facing when they go in the workplace. So thank you so much for being here today. Um, to your point about caving in at the first, you know, when we meet the first fire, I, I found that as well. It's really hard. You know, it's, it's very hard, but just 
do it, okay? The system will work around you. This is what I found. Don't sacrifice it. It's fine to just hold that line. So if you say, this is what I need to do to be 100% at work every day, engaged and my most effective, this is how I am most effective. This is how I operate. This, this culture and the system will change around you as hard as that, that seems. Um, try it. <laughs> and I think that you'll be pleasantly surprised. So in terms of podcasts or what I read, um, well, to be honest, I don't, I, I read leadership development. I still am, I teach it. I teach it for DOD. I teach a communications class for DOD. I teach a, a leadership course. I will tell all of you that the um, Defense Counterintelligence Security Agency, DCSA, they have a Center for Development of Security Excellence. They have a lot of training courses you can take online for communications, for writing, speaking, leadership, um, management, things like that. And we teach a portfolio of 18 courses. They're graduate level accredited. They're free to all military and all DOD employees. And so I teach um, two semesters each year. And in my teaching is really when I, I get in contact with these readings. So I'm not necessarily you know, having things pushed to me, but basically a topic will come up in the classroom about leadership. And these are employees in DOD um, that are facing all different types of leadership issues. So it could be um, coworker issues. It could be issues with their boss. We have one whole forum where we talk about well, who's your best boss and who's your worst boss. This is a really good conversation to have if you ever have a group discussion about leadership and talk, really talk about the toxic boss, what traits they had, how you don't want to be, how you don't want to lead, and then the good boss. We usually, we learn more from the bad boss. Um, that's just personal experience, but um, this is a good topic to, to bring up. So really the Harvard Business Review has amazing leadership articles. I highly recommend Harvard Business Review. One thing I found when I got out of the military is that when we were in the military and we were focused on military leadership, we read all military stuff, like the best generals, World War II generals, Patton, Eisenhower, which is great, but industry leaders, um, you know, there's a whole other group of leaders out there that are facing the same kind of issues that we have. I mean, it's not life or death, it's not national security, but leadership, leadership 101. So get out and expand beyond military leadership reading material into some other things, you know, and I think Harvard Business Review, the articles are, they're written really plain language, easy to read, really powerful, good takeaways, good lessons. So you can pick up Harvard Business Review, you know, you can get it through Amazon or you could get it at Barnes and Noble or somewhere. Just pick one up and have a look at it. Um, to me, that's like a really important investment is to read about leadership. Also case studies of poor leaders, how they failed. Um, talking about that in the workplace, if, if there's a, you know, some kind of catastrophic failure in the workplace, really peeling it back. What happened? How can we fix it? This builds your culture, this builds your resiliency, and also growing leaders. We, we have to grow the next generation. You're not going to be there forever. Someone's going to take your place, and we, they need to be ready. They need to be prepared. So that's part of this um, conversation and this mentoring, this force development. Awesome. Thank you so much, ma'am. And please, if anyone has questions, come up mute. Uh, if you want to raise your hand, type a question in. Uh, this is 100% your time to, you know, to reach out and, and to ask the hard or maybe easy question, you know, any question. Hello, this is Cheryl Ray. It's all right to have a question. Mm -hmm. Hi, Cheryl. Hello, thank you so much for doing this, ma'am. We've learned a lot here today. I know you record, um, reported a lot on Stephen Covey. So um, what do you think of any other leadership and have you have any other favorites that you would recommend for reading? 
Well, that's a good question. Um, Peter Senge is another one that, that writes amazing things. Um, Simon Sinek, Start With Why, um, and also Trust. He talks a lot about trust. Um, trying to think of who else. Drucker, you know, kind of the old, old school leadership as well, Leadership 101. Um, who else? Covey, Shine, Shemmerhorn. There's a lot of um, authors in the area of leadership if you want to get into theory. Or if you want to get into case studies, um, you know, it kind of depends. But I really like um, Simon Sinek. I would read his work for sure. And he has a relationship with the Air Force. So he wrote a book um, and he quotes a lot of Air Force leaders in it. But Start With Why is probably a really good, really good. And for leaders also, starting with why is important. Why are things happening? Why is, why aren't, why aren't things happening? <laughs> why did that exercise? Why do we fail that exercise? Why? Are, is our retention poor? Why are people miserable? Why, why, why? You know, so kind of digging into that um, is really important for leaders and confronting those problems. Thank you for the comments. Thank you, Sarah. S says thank you for taking time. Thank you. Hi, ma'am. Uh, this is Chief Daniels, MC Command First Sergeant. Um, Hi, first, Chief. Hey, first, thank you. Um, I've loved listening to this and I can relate to way more of it than I want to admit to. <laughs> um, one thing I was just curious about, um, you know, I'm later in my career and I'm seeing you in this, in the contract role, I'm wondering, do you find um, after you transition that there are these similar issues in the civilian world that our military women face? Like, do they mirror each other, the challenges, or are they different? Well, it depends on what sector you go in and work in. I mean, I'm in the security sector, and so there are a lot of the same challenges. Um, for instance, when I go to a conference, you know, there's hardly any women to begin with. But things like, you know, if you come into a meeting late or into a conference session late or you get up and leave, everybody remembers that, right? Like, I think a man could get up and leave in a situation like that, and nobody would really know. But afterward, people are like, hey, where'd you go? Or I saw you come in late and, you know, so the kind of like the focus is on you. So, you know, it's just kind of uncomfortable at times. But uh, I think in the private security world, there are more women entering the field. But still, I, I see some of the same challenges. I see some of the imposter syndrome. I see some of the mean girl stuff happening. Um, that association, the ASIS that I belong to, there's a, you know, there's like a small subset of you have to work hard to get in this group and I'm just all over, I am over that. I'm not going to do that kind of crap, but yeah, I do kind of see, see that a little bit. Um, some corporations though, I think are better at it because they realize that it's retention. They were going to retain talent. And so they work harder. A lot of companies sink, you know, millions of dollars into development of females and minorities and really hyper-focus on that area um, to ensure that they have a diverse leadership leader, representation later. And it's something that the military hasn't been great at. I mean, finally, we have, you know, black generals, we have black chiefs, we have black senior enlisted, you know, I mean, it's just, why did it take us so long? We had, we really worked on bringing the pool in, but sometimes we don't ask why they're leaving. This is really important to ask why people leave the military. And when I was the head of um, separations and retirements for the Air Force, I wanted to have an exit survey. Most good companies have an exit survey where they ask people why they left. And they gather that and they bake it into their processes and try to keep it from happening. Um, the Air Force really doesn't do that. They don't really ask, why did you leave? And so we have this great pool of people and then we get to the colonel level and then the general level and just like, where did they go? Where did all these people, where, you know, where are minorities? Where are women? And they're just gone and people don't ask why or what could we have done to keep you or anything 
it's just not asked. So in, we can do that though in our organizations, you know, you could do that at AMC, MAGCOMS could certainly do that, but it was a survey that I actually developed. It was for the Air Force, it was for the MPFs to give people when they were separating to ask um, their why were they disgruntled. And this is something actually we did at Lake and Heath when I was the MSS commander. We did have a survey at Lake and Heath and we fed the stats to the wing commander about why people um, were even where they were separating to try to figure out why they were leaving. I don't know if the Air Force doesn't want to hear the answer. I'm not sure, but I think it's not healthy for them because if they knew some of the reasons, maybe we could fix some things. I appreciate that insight. Thank you. Any other questions from anybody? I'm just checking my time here. We're good. We still have time. Thank you, Sergeant Rivera. Like, I think, I think, um, like I mentioned before, you know, at Joe Minahan, Joe Novos, the last commanders we've had at AMC, and been very refreshing, I think, because you, you, Joe Minahan just recently posted, you know, he takes mental health, mental appointments, mental uh, wellness appointments. Joe Novos is really bringing to the forefront of, hey, we need to be able to see our senior leaders. We need to be able to see folks doing these type of things. And I, I've been in for about 11 years now, and I think it's been a really great shift into to actually seeing seeing folks around us making that change. But I think we still have a long way to go. And I, I guess my question to you too is, as you've kind of done this, I don't think the circuit's the right word. As you've done this presentation in different venues, do do you think we're well? One, do you think we're moving the needle, if you will, or do you think we're we're making progress? And 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 where do you think? Currently in the military, do you think we're going fast enough? And and I think that's something at AMC that's been uh, a huge, you know, whether it's on the operational side, transformational, cultural side. Do you think we're moving fast enough, uh, or or is there still just a lot of work to be done? I think there's still a lot of work to be done. Now I'm really hopeful with the new generations coming in the workplace because um, our daughter's 23, and I know she and her peers. You know, if they need help, they just go get it. If they have anxiety, if they have um, whatever's happening, it's not a stigma for them to go get help, the help that they need. And this is who we're bringing into the military right now is this generation. Um, I think what the military has realized is that when everybody leaves, they become a veteran and that they take their baggage and all their issues to the VA and to the veteran and to TRICARE and to others, other places. And so it's better now to focus on it when they're on active duty and try to help take the corrective actions as opposed to just waiting until they retire, they separate, and then they become a, not a burden, but they become, you know, part of this other system where they need help. Uh, so I think that that's been helpful to kind of connect the VA, what's happening with uh, veterans to what's happening to active duty and trying to preemptively help and, and provide help. I think a lot of stigma has been removed though. I know just from my time, you know, when I came in to where we are now, it's a huge, you don't see it, but it's huge leaps and bounds in terms of people saying, I have a problem. Um, I need counseling. I need help. I can't handle this. And I need to talk to somebody. Um, it's changed so much. Now, obviously in the PRP world, there's still, you know, because people are working with nuclear weapons, uh, loading them, dropping them, whatever, that there's a whole other level of um, criteria that needs to be met in that area for them to be certified. And you can always decertify, you know, and even in PRP, we could decertify somebody 
and let them get help that they need. If it's grief counseling, if they've lost a parent or they've had a miscarriage or whatever the problem is, let them get the counseling they need and bring them back as a whole person back to um, certification. So there's a way to do that as well, baked into the process. But I, it's, it's come so far and I think it does need to, to go further where we continue to remove that stigma. I think when anytime a senior leader or a senior officer comes out and says that they've gone to counseling or they had a problem that they went and sought help for, it's just so powerful. You know, it's that whole be the change that you want to see. And sometimes it's really scary and you have to be brave to share those stories. But it's really powerful. And it, it could just be at the local level, you know, even at the wing or in AMC, if somebody's willing to come forward and talk about their journey and their story of how they became whole again. And how and we need our people to be whole. We need them to, you know, we have people packing parachutes and people loading weapons and flying planes and uh, people carrying weapons. And, you know, if they have an issue, we need to deal with it so that that doesn't decrease their effectiveness or bring harm to themselves or others on duty just because they're tired because they didn't sleep all night or their mind is somewhere else and they drive into a plane, which happened at Andrews. We had one of our security forces drive his truck into an F-16 on the ramp when I was a vice commander. So that was a great call at two in the morning, um, just because he was distracted. He was worried about other stuff. You know, and that, that's what happens. It's a safety issue and a security issue. So there's room, there's definitely progress that we need to make, but I will tell you it's come a long, long way. I'm really proud of what's happened and that the conversations are more open and that the, um, people are able to seek help internally and externally too. Hey man, it's Chief Daniels again. Just a, a question from one of our quieter people that doesn't want to ask publicly. Sure. Uh, what area, we were just kind of talking about your comments, um, having little sidebars. Um, what area do you think we have missed the mark when it comes to um, advancement of women in the military or supporting women? Like where's, from your perspective, what have we not gotten right or not, maybe not recognized or addressed? Oh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. That's a really good question. I don't know if I could isolate one area that we haven't been good at. I mean, things have changed so much in terms of like breastfeeding, you know, offering that opportunity, offering a place to do it. It wasn't like that before. Um, you know, so that, that whole conversation has come forward. Um, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I could pinpoint one area. I know a lot of women that had potential to be chiefs, be colonels, be generals, get out um, at a certain point or retire and unplug. I don't know if uh, they self-actualized like I did, where I just realized, you know, I did everything I came here to do. Yes, there's more for me, but I want to uh, focus on my family. One thing, I, one program I did push, and I don't know if we have it yet in the Air Force, is the sabbatical program where you could step away for a year and do something and then come back to the military. I don't know if they ever um, instituted that, but I think that's really powerful. That would help women a lot if you could step away at a certain point and then come back um, and not be penalized for that, be able to command, be on the leadership track still. Yeah, I mean, we have, um, like you've probably heard of it in passing, it's called the Career Intermission Program. So. Uh, I know on the flying side of the house, uh, as an operator, it, it would be you step away for three years, you come back with the commitment, obviously, on the end, and, and the intent is you would leave, let's say you're a 2010 year group on the officer side, this is just officers, from what I understand. I'm a 2010 year group, I take the career admission program, and now I'm a 2013 year group, right? So in theory, okay. you're here, you know, you haven't lost time, but, it, it, but I think we all can agree, you know, 
you lose your peer group, your peer group moves on without you. So they are never that whole thing. But, you know, I, I know in chatting uh, in conversations with the WID and some other teams that are kind of working these issues, we just, they're not seeing those programs being used. And I think uh -huh. that's the, that's the hard part is, okay, you know, how do we really tailor and foster these programs in a way that, because again, you know, there's not a lot of women to begin with. And then, you know, we can talk about like pregnancy concerns. That's even a smaller pool when you get to these really small niche kind of groups. And so I think that's a big challenge right now is how do we cast the widest net, but make uh -huh. everything, you know, not tailored, but, but in a way that people can use it and tailor it to their situation. I think that's, that's the hard thing that I've seen with a lot of these programs. Like you mentioned, programs are hard because you're trying to catch as many as you can, but you always have outliers. And I, I just feel like it's one of those that we just haven't gotten right yet you know, with a lot of these types of programs that you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And I think just asking, again, just asking women, and sometimes it's us, you know, and that's kind of one of the points of this presentation is the system's there for us. Maybe the system's there to support us, and sometimes we're the problem, you know, and that's why I think we need to be really introspective about how are we putting up our own barriers, whether it's not using the programs for some reason or not um, making the decisions and having the strength to leave the workout every day a couple hours or leave at 5.15 every day or, you know, so is the system providing us everything that we need, but we're not either taking advantage of it or there's still that stigma, you know, that we, if we do take advantage of it, what does that mean? And that's that whole representing all womankind kind of stress and pressure that we have. Um, but I think overall, it seems to me that at least the Air Force, I can't speak for the other branches, but has done like a fantastic job um, addressing these issues, especially recently. I think there's been a great leap, you know, maybe like in the last five or 10 years even on this topic. Um, the problem is though, I mean, there's still the mission and missions first and we're national security is our life. We're not selling, you know, widgets or <laughs> we're not Target or some other corporation. I mean, it's life or death. And so it's also the nature of the beast of the, the career path that we've chosen um, that we subject ourselves sometimes to this. So really figuring out how we as individuals, our needs and how we can operate in this system is also really important. And then just sharing stories with each other, you know, like today, just sharing my story, asking other people for their stories and just taking little pieces of it maybe and figuring out how to, how to help your your own advancement of your own goals and balance. Hey, Chief Daniel, sorry, I'm a vocal person. Um, That's okay. <laughs> I, I, well, I was listening to your story and so much, is, so much of it was relatable to experience that I felt um, maintenance by trade, very similar, not, you know, no girls wrong. Um, and I was just thinking back, you know, you're talking about your kind of self-accusation, you talk about mentorship and all that kind of stuff. And I think one of the biggest challenges that, you know, we feel we have mentors, and especially if you are, I don't want to say you're first, because it's absolutely not a first, but you're in that, you know, where there's only a few folks around. I know, um, as I was sharing with uh, Major Payton, when I made chief, I really debated, do I walk away from my family or do I put the stripe on? Um, and it was a, you know, we get a weekend before it kind of goes public and a lot of back and forth and left and right. And as you said, I reached out to mentors, kind of similar, um, and I would say not one person would ever have told me to turn it down. And I look back now, and I'm like, the, there just aren't those, right? Because we're so promotion focused in the Air Force, we're so like constantly striving that I did not have one mentor that even they all thought I was crazy, like to, for even considering it. 
And so, I don't know, I mean, you touched on a little bit and I'm not sure if there's really a question there versus maybe um, a consideration for those on it. Finding those right mentors that can, you know, give you both sides can be quite a big challenge um, as you yeah. go up higher. You know, I think the staff sergeant um, that's making that choice, people are like, oh, you've only invested six years. Yeah, walk away. But once mm-hmm. you're kind of in the system, it can be very hard to get true mentorship and guidance on those type of life moments. I agree. I agree. And that's why I kind of focus in on that mentoring and coaching, because, you know, kind of assess right now who you think are your mentors, who's really coaching you to get the promotion or get the next strike or get the next rank. And who's really worried about you, the whole person, and that's your mentor. That's the one who's going to say, when you decide to not take the stripe or you decide to get out at 12 years or whatever, they're going to say, that's a good decision. You know, you chose your family, you chose your health. That's a healthy decision for you, the person, as opposed to you're cutting and running, which is how I felt when I talked to some of my mentors. Um, you know, that I, I owed the Air Force four years and I gave 21 years like, the, you know, I thought it was the best 21 years of my life. Turns out chapter two is even better, but that's a different presentation. Um, you know, so I think now you can kind of sort through that in your mind, like who's who's your coach and who's your mentor. And we need coaches. We need the people who are invested in us to make chief and to get the generals and whatever else. But the ones who are in the whole person business, they want to make sure you're healthy and you're a whole person and you're following your path and you're carving your path that you want. It's your life, you know, carve the path you want. Yes, that was a hard conversation. Also, because um, John and I, you know, we, we might have been the first couple uh general officer couple with a child at the time, you know, now I'm sure we've probably had some, but there's a lot of pressure on me for that too. I felt that because I felt I'm on the step of like proving you can do it all. You can be a general and you can have a husband who's military and you can have a child. And so when I made that decision to retire that I felt that pressure, I felt like, am I letting everyone down? And there were a lot of people that were already invested in that, that were like, oh, you know, you need to be a general so that you can show that we can do this and the women can do this. And, you know, and and then I just unplugged. And so it was a really interesting decision at a really weird time. So when I did have the calls with the mentors, it was really interesting to me um, and disappointing. Some of them really disappointing to me. Um, and General Smolin, he was one of my mentors. He retired me. He's a retired three-star. Unfortunately, he passed away. So he he retired and he was only out maybe for like a year or two. And he had optional surgery and he found out he had a rare blood cancer and he died within about nine months. It was really tragic. But um you know, he was one that when I called, he was like, Jenny, this is, he asked me a couple of questions, you know, he wasn't going to let me off, let me off the hook. But when I told him I self-actualized and I really wanted to be there for Sarah during her middle school years and whatever, I didn't want to split her family up with two assignments and everything else. It was just a pure decision. You know, I, I, I walked away from it pure. I thought about my peers like Peggy Poor and, you know, these women who went on to be generals, Sharon Dunbar, and those were my, that's my peer group. And they all went on to be generals and I probably would have been with them. Um, and I thought about would I be jealous? Would I feel upset with myself that I didn't? And I didn't. I felt I completely self-actualized and I was so proud of them. And I never felt one moment that I made a bad decision. And it was just a great feeling to, to get to that point. So I, I wish that for all of you that you self-actualize because it is really a, a good, healthy thing. Um, but yeah, so now you can think about now that you think about coaches and mentors, if you have to have that uncomfortable phone call, who's with you, who's in your corner and who's the one who's going to say you're cutting and running? Um, figure that out now so that you're not disappointed. Well, ma'am, th- thank you so much. I, I cannot say thank you enough for reaching out to us, uh, you know, number one, and then also just for, for being willing to have a conversation. And it can be a hard conversation. And 
I appreciate the folks for listening. Like I said that all the folks in the room here, I want to respect your time. We kind of hit our limit, but we we would love to have you back. And you know, maybe that next conversation discussion that we have is is kind of that that second phase in your life. And uh, but again, thank you so much. Uh, again, absolutely. Is- thank you. Thank you. And thanks to everybody who came today. I know you're super busy and I really appreciate it. And I hope that even if just one thing that I said connected with you, it was completely worth my time. So thank you so much. And thanks for this great program. I'm so excited about this program. I actually learned about it from one of my students who's a DOD employee at the Pentagon. She found out about it and she said, hey, you'd be a perfect speaker for this. So you never know how how things are going to happen in the world. But I'm glad we were able to chat today and I'd love to come back. I can talk about the transition from military to private sector. I can talk about uh, anything you want to hear about the North Pole and the South Pole, <laughs> digging for dinosaur bones, anything you want to hear about writing books, uh, I would love to come back and chat with you more. So thank you. And thanks, Kelsey. Thank you so much. And Chief, thanks for setting this up.